promises, promises, I'm all through with promises, promises now. I don't know how I got the nerve to walk out. If I shout, remember, I feel free. Now I can look at myself and be proud. I'm laughing out loud. Oh, promises, promises, this is where those promises, promises end. I won't pretend that what was wrong can be right every night. I'll sleep now, no more lies. Things that I promised myself fell apart, but I found my heart. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 12th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. And you can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, we have to update your bio. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> because you have been successfully producing shows, and, and we have another one coming up. So tell us about the, uh, the latest endeavor into producing. Yeah, I had planned, I had first had this idea a while ago. Um, I think actually a friend of mine rem- told me it was 15 years ago that I wow. first <laughs> wow. mentioned it to him. And initially, I thought it would be a great off-Broadway show. Um, but first of all, there isn't. Well, it's hard to do off Broadway nowadays, and is, uh, and also it's not really within my, you know, my grasp to do. I don't think I, I have the wherewithal to produce an off Broadway show. So I decided instead to do it at Fifty Four Below, and it the show is Jerry Orbach's Broadway. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, everyone that I have mentioned this to, uh, we, we just recently posted the uh, the event page on the Fifty Four Below website, and everyone that I've heard from uh, through Facebook and wherever said they think it's a really, really great idea sure. because uh, Jerry Orbach is one of those wonderful people who not only people do love, uh, not only do they love him for his talent, you know, and for his roles uh, on Broadway and his many cast recordings and his TV work in law and order and his films uh, and all of that. But, he has a reputation for having been one of the nicest men in show business. Uh, Yeah. Really, really down to earth and would speak to anyone who came Mm -hmm. up to him on the street. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, So, so truly beloved. Um, And it it is nice when those two things go together. I mean, (laughs) we don't have to feel uh, bad about enjoying someone's performance because we hear that, they're a horrible person, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 quite the opposite here. So I, I'm very encouraged by the response, um, even though that is so far away, it seems so far away, Monday, July 24th uh, at 7 p.m. 
and we have already got we're not completely cast but um the people we have so far i think really stellar we have william michaels uh who is currently in parade and will still be in parade uh i I believe that will still be running at that time uh and uh he's got one of the great broadway voices he was um a a cover and 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 took over for emile de beck in the beautiful Lincoln Center Theater production of South Pacific. And he's done a lot of other stuff. I saw him do a magnificent Sweeney Todd uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. The what's it's called the Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he, he's just really, really great. So we've got him. We've got J. Aubrey Jones, who I like to think of as my lucky charm mm-hmm. at 54 <laughs> Below, because he's been in all but one of my shows there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then um, there's another uh, male slot that we haven't filled yet. But then as special guest performers, we have two people who actually worked with Jerry. We have Leroy Reams, mm-hmm. uh, who, of course, worked with him in 42nd Street and has lots of stories about that. And we have Jill O'Hara, mm-hmm. who uh, played opposite him in Promises, Promises. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And there may be another special guest performer as well, but... As I say, it's so far in the future that some people can't quite commit yet. But I'm really very excited about it, and I hope you all put it on your calendar. Mm-hmm. That is great. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Jerry was so beloved in the community. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I couldn't think of – I'm surprised that nobody else has done it yet. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I was – fearing that someone would get to it before me <laughs> because as i you waited said, 15 years <laughs> yeah <laughs> right so uh but then i thought it really is it's it's perfect for a, a venue like 54 below so i think uh, you know i have really high hopes for it all right so uh let's get some housekeeping done here <laughs> um yeah, somebody had emailed me this week and said, you never talk about all the other stuff on Broadway Radio because some people only listen to the Sunday show and they might not know what else is happening on Broadway Radio. Of course, we have uh, Today on Broadway, Monday through Friday, which is uh, doing our uh, our news wrap-ups and uh, review wrap-ups. Uh, Matt and Ashley and Grace, uh, you know, will... Uh, Give you all the news from Broadway. Plus, uh, this week, as as things start to open on Broadway, Matt does review wrap ups from everybody, all the major uh, review sources. Uh, also, uh, Jan Simpson's "All the Drama" got released this week to um, to Patreon listeners, uh, and it'll be out in the public next week. And uh, this week. Uh, this month, uh, Jan talked to playwright Lynn Nottage, and she talked about Ruined, which was the 2009 Pulitzer Prize mm. winner. Uh, and we're going to talk about Lynn Nottage a little bit later in the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Lauren Class Schneider did class notes uh, from Mama, I Want to Sing with uh, uh, Vi Higginson. And also uh, Matt Tamanini, uh who just – if there were no Matt Timoney, there would be no Broadway radio. Um Really, he he is the backbone of this thing. Uh, and Matt Tamanini did a special episode. He talked to Patrick Page about this amazing production of Lear that's going on down in DC, mm, and such yeah. su- such great uh, reviews and things like that. You have to wonder if it's going to end up in New York uh, in some way or somehow. And 
and just to let you know, uh, when I say that Matt is the backbone, it's truly the truth because we, we just had our seventh anniversary of today on Broadway. Wow. Uh, so five days a week, nonstop, uh, there are podcasts for today on Broadway and Matt is up to 1,712 podcasts. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, truly without Matt, there would be no Broadway mm-hmm. radio. He's really just amazing. And thank him so much for all mm-hmm. that he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some uh, uh, some breaking news last night that uh, Parade was canceled uh, before the performance started last night because of technical problems with their video. Uh and so it, it was a big surprise because the New York Times was there and and Carrie Joy David was there and Adam Feldman was there and all the uh, first night rep- uh, uh, first night reviewers were there. Uh, so we hope they get back on schedule and uh, er- everything works out with that. Uh, lots of folks were commenting, "Can't can't we do the show without video issues?" And I would say, "And I, I don't know, I haven't seen it, so maybe it's on." Un- unchangeable. What what so, what date it was to have been the official opening, or uh, is it still? I they I haven't gotten an email that they have moved the opening. So let me look at what the opening officially is scheduled for. Let's see, parade. It's if the first nighters were there, it must be very soon. March sixteenth. So four days uh, away. Oh, okay. March sixteenth, four days yeah. away. So. Yeah. Uh, We'll see what happens uh, with that. But uh, hopefully it's just something that they were able to solve quickly and get back on track today for today's performance. Uh, So, uh, and Michael, you wanted to correct something from last week's podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just was talking too fast. (laughs) I was uh, discussing the new cast album of Knoxville, the wonderful uh, Flaherty and Aaron's musical. That was done uh, last year at the Asilo Rep in Sarasota, Florida. And now there's a wonderful album of it. And I attended the CD signing at the Museum of Broadway. And I somehow uh, I gave the wrong information that the production in Florida had been directed by Jason Danieli, um, who was also in it. Uh, well, he was in it, but he didn't direct it. I, I got confused because Jason is directing the upcoming symphonic ragtime that's going to be happening at uh, in Boston at Symphony Hall and then also at Tanglewood. But no, uh, Knoxville was directed by the Frank, the great Frank Galati. Uh, and it was, I, I guess, his last thing because he we lost mm. him. Um, mm. And in fact, it's really quite heartbreaking because the notes, there's a note in the CD booklet uh, from Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty dated October 2022. Um, so that must have gone to press really not long before Mr. Galati died. And the last line of the of the uh, the the little tribute here is uh, most of all we're grateful to Frank Galati for inviting us to board a train bound for surprise and travel with him all the way home to Knoxville. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I just I'm sorry about that little lapse there, but Frank Galati was a really great director um, and apparently an- another person who was very beloved in the industry. Mm. Um, so that was mm. a really, really great loss. 
Uh, speaking of beloved people in the industry, uh, we have a celebration of life for Annie Ranking coming up uh, on March 20th oh, yeah. with the Ambassador. Uh, Michael, any uh, uh, let people know about that? Well, yeah, I just read about it uh, for the first time. I don't. I, I suppose they just announced it. A celebration of the life of famed choreographer and performer Anne Reinking will take place March 20th at 1.30 p.m. at Broadway's Ambassador Theater. Anne passed away on December 12th, 2020. Organized by B.B. Newworth, Caitlin Carter, and Anne's husband, Peter Talbert. The memorial is open to the public. Participants scheduled to pay tribute include James Naughton, Dillis Croman, Rob Fisher, B.B. Newworth, and Ben Vereen. Um, when you talked about Jerry Orbeck being loved, so was Anne Ryan King. She was very nice to everybody as well. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to our review section. Peter, you got over to St. Clements to see a production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So tell us about this. Well, this is a, a, a remount of a production that ran last summer, um, but there's been uh, a couple of important changes. There's that famous expression that uh, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, if you have um, chains that uh, have links that are, can take 40 pounds, but you have a thread that um, in the middle of it, it's going to break um, very quickly, no matter how strong those 40 pound uh, chains are. Well, the problem with this production way back when was the fact that they did not have an excellent Maggie the Cat. And I mean, after all, she is the title character, even though she does disappear quite a bit um, in during the second act of the show. But anyway, um, they knew um, the people putting this on, um, and that includes uh, Joe Rosario, and uh, Ruth Stage is the actual name of the production company. Joseph Grano was involved too. And um, they decided that um, they really did need another Maggie, um, if they were going to remount this again. So uh, they got Courtney Hengler, <laughs> all right, H-E-N-G-G-E-L-E-R, Hengler, um, to play the part, and she is magnificent. So this has made all the difference in the world. Because, you know, it really does happen that if you do have somebody wonderful come into a show, that everybody else gets buoyed up as well, you know, and um, that's what's happened here. Uh, Matt um, DeRogatis, who was playing Brick, uh, who was fine uh, way back when, is extraordinary now. Extraordinary. He really has this character down pat now, and it really is something to see. Um, a truly magnificent performance, and I'm I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, he has somebody wonderful to play against now. I will say there is one problem with this, and uh, this has been brought up before. Hmm. Uh, he's He's heavily tattooed. Now, the thing is, this production has been updated. Uh, we do hear the F word quite a bit in this show, and I know that didn't happen uh, way back when, in the 50s, when this was first produced. Uh, so one can certainly defend the fact that people are, are greatly tattooed now. The problem is that on his forearm, uh, his right forearm, he actually has the word actor tattooed on there. So it is a reminder that he's an actor, and I wish that he would wear a shirt so we didn't see that because he doesn't feel like he's acting when he's acting, uh, which is the best type of acting you can get when people don't <laughs> act like they're acting. So um, so that's uh, pretty significant. But in terms of a performance, if you can uh, overlook that tattoo, um, then you're going to have a, a pretty impressive time with him. All right, Alison Frazier is back again as Big Mama. Um, given that they were fooling around with the script with the uh, F word, 
I think they should have uh, dropped another F word, and that is the word fat, because I'm telling you, there's a lot of talk about fat, and I'm telling you, 99 and 44, 100% of the women in the nation wish they had Alison Frazier's figure. So um, she really is in terrific shape and um, really is quite fine as Big Mama. Now, of course, big doesn't refer to the fact that, that she's heavy. It means you know, that she's the, the boss, so to speak. Of course, Big Daddy is the boss, and he's not big either in the conventional sense that, let's say, Burl Ives was when he did the part way back when. No, not indeed. And we have somebody new there, too, now. And now it's Frederick Weller. And Frederick Weller, of course, is um, to theater fans is a, a very, very well-known actor, and rightfully so. I mean, we've seen him in To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, um, Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, Take Me Out. Um, you know, really, uh, he has uh, quite a bit of um, credits on his resume. So, um, So he's playing the part now, and he's terrific. Uh, really quite wonderful, um, even though he uh, <laughs> doesn't have the size that one associates with the role. But again, if you think of it in terms of uh, um, just the uh, paterfamilias, then indeed um, you understand why he's big. So um, Adam Dodway is Gooper. Um, boy, when you have a name like Gooper, I mean, you're really uh, in tough shape. And uh, he, he certainly plays that part in the appropriately goopy way. You know, so that's something. And um, really... Uh, as his wife, I really was uh, tremendously taken with uh, Christine Copley, uh, doing a fine, fine job as the wife who is not afraid to speak her mind in any situation, um, talking about the fact that Brick, um, uh, his only glory uh, was with a football and now is with a highball, uh, because he has become quite the alcoholic. So anyway, a lot of the play talks about the uh, Brick talks in the play about um, the when he knows when he's getting drunk, when a click happens. A click, yeah, and um, I'm telling you, this production clicks now, and um, I I really do believe it's worth taking in at St. Clement. And you know, it was funny. I've often complained about St. Clement's as a venue because um, uh, I'm uh, it's a church, and as a result, the sound goes up and there's an echo. It didn't strike me that way this time. Even the sound has improved. Um, and I don't know if they had a sound designer that um, knew what to do or what happened, but. Um, I was waiting for that echo to happen, and it just did not happen. So it's quite, quite clear now, and I'm delighted it is. Yeah, Thomas Correa has the sound design um, credit, and I'm not sure if indeed he had it before, but um, whatever he, he has done, he has certainly adjusted it. So um, this is really something. I know that Philadelphia has a production of Cat in a Hot Tin Roof right now, too. And um, all I can say is uh, you don't have to travel 90 miles to see a good production of Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Peter, I think this has come up before, but I'm almost 100% certain that the F word was added by Williams in one of his rewrites. I see. Yeah, because I don't think these people would go so far as to actually add that word. And uh -huh. I do remember um, s seeing and hearing it in um, one or two previous productions. I uh, I personally think it was a mistake. Uh, uh, William started to do that, I think, later in his life. He started well, to revisit things. Yeah, yeah. Well, so they all do, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah, so but I didn't know that he did that. That said, I mean, given the fact that it seems to be contemporary, it's not a problem. Um, yeah, it, it, there isn't a period feel here, and I don't think they want it. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that's what they were going for. I had I have not seen this production. I went to a press preview of the previous one, and and I 
purposely stayed away because in, in well two re- two main reasons that woman who had been playing Maggie mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. literally inaudible at mm-hmm. the yeah at she the, was yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I thought well gosh I don't want and you mentioned that yeah. she does disappear for much of the second act but you, you didn't mention in this case uh, today that the first act is practically a monologue for her. <laughs> mm, it is, yeah, so, yeah. so if you don't, if you have someone who's inaudible and, or really not that great, that, that, that must've been quite a, quite a disappointment. Sure. And then also, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I just cannot understand how this story could possibly work updated to the present day. I just don't get it. I, I uh-huh. think, I think there are, you know, I mean, there are the the themes, uh, you know, most of them are still fine, but mendacity, sure. <laughs> yeah, but even but even the whole gay, the way the gay subtext is is treated, would be very very different now than than back then. Even though I I know it's the South and yeah, it's not, that, you know, it's not New York. That up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the and then then also yes, uh, in in a case like that, especially those tattoos for me would be a deal breaker because mm. I, it would be so distracting. Uh, aside from. Um, the distracting i mean that character would never have tattoos even i think nowadays because of the type of you know he's supposed to be the golden boy of this very conservative uh um family in the south and he's you have football hero and uh, i i just uh, that mm-hmm, makes no mm-hmm, sense to me mm-hmm, but that's you know mm-hmm. that's just my opinion <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the production photos he's uh on, on crutches well, yeah, no, that's the character. Uh, yeah, he's injured but, himself. Um, that's not uh, the actor um, having a problem. That's the character. He he was yeah, jumping the, football uh, hurdles. Go yeah, I, I was just going to say I, I, I knew that, but I'm going to say that the the crutch and the and the boot that he's wearing is very, very you know, modern looking. Modern, yeah. and ah, so again, it it, ah. it it's odd, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, certainly. Very good looking cast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> so that is uh, Canada Hots and Ruth at St. Clements running through March 31st, uh, 2023. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Michael, you got over to uh, the Axis Theater Company uh, to see Washington Square, an adaptation. So tell us about this. This is a very interesting item um, because this is a new stage adaptation of the novel by Henry James, which is titled Washington Square, but was previously adapted very famously uh, into a play called The Heiress by Ruth and Augustus Getz, which has been on Broadway. um, How many times here? I have it. I think four. Yeah, it's, it's been, (laughs) it's been on Broadway a lot. Um, And uh, I have never read the novel and I was amazed. Uh, I I assume, although I don't think this is said anywhere in any of the materials, I assume this was done because the novel must be in public domain by now, uh, whereas the play is not quite. And so um, I assume that the, the, that this Randy Sharp who did the adaptation and also directed this production. Uh, and she is the artistic director of the Axis company uh, at, at one Sheridan square. Uh, she was completely free, um, you know, to adapt the novel. And it was amazing to me uh, because I, I uh, because the plot is significantly different. 
uh, especially towards the end of the story. And I, after seeing it, I, I, I went <laughs> right to Wikipedia to check the synopsis. Uh, and indeed, um, the, the plot of the novel is, is quite different. And I would say, uh, you know, I mean, I realize a novel is different from a play uh, and the requirements are different, but I would say that the ending of the play and the, the last part of it is far more effective than the novel, because in a nutshell, it's a story. It's set in 1849 in New York City uh, on this rich uh, doctor and his daughter, his unmarried daughter, live on Washington Square. Uh in in Greenwich Village, and and they live, by the way, in a in a building that I you know I think I used to work in that building. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean there <laughs> there are if you know that the area uh, Washington Square North is a, a um a row of magnificent townhouses, all of which look basically alike from uh, from the outside anyway. And uh, so if it wasn't the one that it was supposed to be, and it may not have been intended to be any one particular uh, specific building anyway. Uh, they they all pretty much look alike. And and in the movie of The Heiress with Olivia de Havilland, et cetera, um, I don't think it was actually shot in one of those buildings, but they recreated them. And it looks exactly like this place that I used to work. <laughs> so that's kind of amazing to me. Um, anyway, uh, so they live there. Catherine is the daughter uh, and her father is Dr. Sloper. And uh, Catherine winds up being courted by this young fellow named Morris Townsend, who's very good looking, but there are some doubts about his sincerity. And basically what happens is um, that Dr. Sloper D develops an intense dislike for, for Morris and thinks he's a gold digger who is only after the money that Catherine will inherit when Dr. Sloper dies. Um, and Catherine, you know, doesn't believe that. She thinks that Morris really loves her, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it gets to the point where Dr. Sloper very cruelly comes out and says point blank to Catherine that he doesn't believe, you know, she's just not desirable enough in terms of her physical appeal and also her personality for anyone to want her for herself. And that it must be that this guy only wants her for her money. Now, obviously, this is tremendously, tremendously hurtful. Um, so Catherine then, uh, as much out of maybe rebellion as anything else, uh, pursues um, the she. Uh, there, it's decided that she and Morris are going to elope because the father is so much against the uh, the union. But then what happens is um, Catherine tells Morris that her father has told her that he will disinherit her if she. Uh, does not end the romance. And although she still will be getting some money from her mo her dead mother, it will be only a fraction of what she would have gotten. Well, as soon as Morris hears this, um, uh, we, <laughs> well, we don't necessarily see it at the moment, but he decides to change his plans. So uh, he is supposed to pick her up that night, uh, you know, late at night, uh, 
in a carriage so that they will go off and elope and be married. But he literally just leaves her sitting there. Uh, and she, of course, is absolutely devastated. Then um, a few years later, he returns having fallen on even harder times. He's he's practically destitute. And he uh, has the nerve <laughs> to come back and uh, 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 theoretically apologize and ask her to marry him again. And what she does is... Um, she seems to accept his apology and agrees that they will go off and be married. But this time when he returns, she leaves the door bolted and she walks upstairs and turns all the lights off and leaves him banging at the door. Uh, so that is a kind of amazing <laughs> uh, thing, the way that the, that this whole very dramatic uh ending plays out in the play well it's not it, that's not in the in the novel it turns out uh what happens is let's see here um townsend breaks off his engagement to Catherine when uh when he learns that she's not going to be uh inheriting all that money but he doesn't um he doesn't leave her sitting there and, and waiting for him to pick to pick her up in the carriage um, thoroughly disappointed. Catherine refuses to consider any other romantic prospects. She spends the next several years doing charity work and caring for her aging father. When Dr. Sloper contracts a fatal case of pneumonia, he discloses to Catherine that his punishment for her relationship with Townsend. He has severely reduced her inheritance and Pennyman orchestrates one last meeting between Townsend and Catherine now older and wiser. She rebuffs his advances and resides herself to life as a spinster. But there again, no, um, no, no deceiving him and saying she's going to go with him and then leaving him banging at the door, shouting her name. Um, so I think that Ruth, Ruth and Augustus Getz really did a pretty great job in, in adding all that stuff, which is incredibly effective and dramatic. Some people might say it's a bit too much. I don't think so. I think it's, it's great. And that's what the heiress has become famous for. Um, all of that, which is not in the novel. Anyway, sorry for that very long winded thing, but this is a quite a good adaptation of the story of the novel. I wish that they, uh, had used those plot devices from the play, but I don't think that they would have been able to without having copyright issues. So uh, you may be a little surprised when you see this, if you know the ending of the play very well. Um, this is a minimalist production, only four actors playing four characters. Uh, some of the minor characters have been uh, eliminated, including the character of Morris's sister, uh, who's a, actually quite a pivotal character in the play, although she only has one or two scenes. Um, but uh, very uh, no set really in this in this production. The costumes were 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 very good, uh, very dark, uh, period inspired costumes. Uh, excellent, excellent acting uh, in a kind of a presentational way uh according to the direction by randy sharp but catherine uh really really beautifully played by brit gamelin uh 
Pennyman is D. Pelletier, whom you may have seen in a number of things. The doctor is uh, George Demas. And Morris Townsend is a fellow named John McCormick, uh, spelled differently from that famous old Irish tenor. Um, this is John, J-O-N-M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K. Uh, and I I really uh, urge you to see this because it was so well done on its own terms. Uh, I just was quite taken aback by the fact that the most compelling uh, and most famous plot points of the play it turns out that they are not quite in the novel. Um, well, this brings up a good point. Hmm. And um, what's, what's very little known about The Heiress, hmm. which was produced in September of 47 and ran almost a year, was the fact that earlier in the year, in April, it was known as Washington Square and closed in Boston. It closed out of town. And they said, okay, we can rework it. So my question becomes, mm. did they have the novel's original ending uh, when they closed out of town in Boston in uh, April of 47? That may very well be the case. I don't have the answer to that. But I do know that this was a play that closed out of town and miraculously showed up later in the year. Mm. How often does that happen, period, that a show shows up again after it closes out of town? Very rarely. But to do it that quickly is really pretty amazing. Uh, so I'm starting to think that that's what happened. That would be fascinating. And I should say, I mean, the denouement uh, in in this adaptation seems so anticlimactic. And to read it in a synopsis also, but in a novel, you know, you, you have so much more time to flesh out the the character's thoughts and and things like that so it may work much better in the novel i i'm just saying that for a play uh i find the ending of the heiress as written by ruth and augustus gets and the whole la latter section of it far far more effective mm -hmm. um so i i think i'm gonna maybe try to read that novel <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's uh, Washington Square at the Axis Theatre Company in their Sheridan Square location. It's uh, playing through April 1st, 2023. What were you going to say, Michael? Oh, just I had not been to that space in years. Uh, Peter said he has seen previous productions of the Axis Company there. But uh, it was quite emotional for me to be there because I saw many productions of the Ridiculous Theatrical Company in that space back in the day. And this is the first time I've been back since the death of Everett Quinton, uh, mm. who, who was such a mainstay of that yeah. company. So yeah. I, um, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's very centrally located. It's like oh, it's yeah. just a few steps from the Christopher Street stop on the right. number one train, yeah. and uh, it's a subterranean space, but it's it's a good space. I so, agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, Peter, next up, you were at Atlantic Theatre Company where you saw Illyria. So tell us about this. Well, I was reminded of what Clive Barnes wrote about a play called I Never Sang for My Father when it opened in 1968. His lead was, a soap opera is a soap opera, no matter how you slice the soap. <laughs> And I'm afraid that's the case here with um, Illyria. Now, this is not Illyria uh, that we know from Twelfth Night. This is Illyria, uh, lady. No, 
No, this is E-L-Y-R-I-A, which happens to be a town in Ohio. And that's where this takes place. Um, because we, uh, in, in 1982, by the way, already, you know, 41 years ago, but, um, it is about, um, immigrants coming and settling in this town and making a life for themselves. There are three continents involved. Um, no, four, I think, because we have uh, Asia represented, we have um, Europe represented, we have South America represented, and of course, we have North America represented with um, Illyria, Ohio. Um, so this is one of those stories where a woman gives up her baby to somebody else and he finds out later. You know, I, I don't think I really have to go into this plot very much. I think that's all you need to know to figure out what's going to happen. However, um, it is done uh, mostly with um, Indian actors. And I do think we have somebody who's going to be a star in this. His name is Mohit Gautam. That's M-O-H-I-T. G-A-U-T-A-M. And the fact that the word hit is in his first name is not surprising <laughs> to me because I think he's going to be a big hit. Um, he has everything. He has stage presence. He has looks. Uh, he knows how to play a tough scene with uh, older actors. And that's the real reason to see this play because I do think this is a breakout performance. It is his New York debut. I um, Well, his off-Broadway debut anyway. Yeah, I'm so because he would certainly uh, list a Broadway credit if he had it. But... Um, but I'm really hoping that my other uh, Theatre World nominators get over there and uh, see this performance, because this guy certainly has my vote. And um, I think he might want to be on the ground floor of seeing this um, actor do his stuff. Uh, but you will see something that um, could very pass for a daytime TV uh, episode. Uh, nicely directed by Awoya Timpo, but um, Deepa Perhoet, who wrote the uh, play itself, um, I'm looking forward to the next work um, because I think um, getting a soap opera audio system is something that a lot of writers have to do. And um, I'll look forward to the next one. All right. So uh, uh, Illyria is playing through March 19th, so you have about a week or so to get over there and check it out. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you went over to 54 Below, I'm assuming last night? Correct. Is that it? Last yeah. night to see Love Song Saturday Night. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about this. This is the newest edition of uh, Scott Siegel's newest series at 54 Below. Uh, he's got at least three of them going now. And... Um, I have never seen a, a bad uh, Scott Siegel mm. show there, but yeah. this one was really extraordinary. Um, he had some of the best of uh, the people that he frequently highlights. Um, ben Jones uh, did two <laughs> interesting uh, pieces, uh, very contrasting. He did the theme from Ice Castles. <laughs> Um, uh, looking through the eyes of love, you know, <laughs> um, and hopelessly devoted to you uh, from Greece, the movie. Uh, and he then he just it, his voice is so phenomenal and he sings so high, uh, not always, but frequently. Uh, but. Uh, but in a way that it, it, it seems so effortless. And yet it's still very exciting. I remember um, when Billy Porter started out, I, and I used to hear Billy sing it, uh, Don't Tell Mama. Uh, he always 
thrilled people, but I, I always had the impression that he was kind of blowing out his voice. And then it oh. turned out that that sort of did happen eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you don't get that feeling for a moment. You feel like he could just keep singing that way all night long because his technique is so phenomenal. Uh, so he, um, I, I said before, I think he's, um, he's blowing up in the sense of people are really starting to notice him. I, I don't know if I mentioned that Lucy Arnaz uh, not long ago saw him perform somewhere and she loved him so much that she presented him in a, in a concert in Palm Springs recently. Uh, and and really uh, really uh, got behind that and 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 promoted it on her social media and all that. And so that apparently was a great success for him. So he he was a highlight of this show. Then we had Matthew Drinkwater uh, without his twin brother John, who was uh, out of town. Uh, so Matthew came by himself <laughs> and did a gorgeous version of "Come to Me, Bend to Me" from. Uh, Brigadoon, and I asked him uh, how, how oh complete with Scottish accent, which was really mm. really great. And I asked him afterwards. I said, "How did you arrive at that particular song, which is really one of my all time favorites?" And he said, "That was one of the first songs that uh, my first voice teacher gave to me when I was nine years old." Uh, so so <laughs> that was really uh, uh, really a, a lovely lovely surprise. I didn't expect him to sing that. Uh, then we had Ed Stoudenmeyer. Um, I think oh, yeah. this might have been might have been his first time in. in uh, uh, well, uh, I th- yes, I think he said it was his first uh, time singing at Fifty Four Below, uh, and he did some Enchanted Evening and Dulcinea. In this gorgeous opera level baritone that that he has developed over the years, his voice has really matured. It was always great, but now it's just so so rich and so huge and so gorgeous. Um, so that was kind of amazing as well. The audience was in the palm of his hand. Um, there was this young fellow named Christopher Bryan, uh, who uh, I mean the actual quality of the instrument uh the vocal instrument i would say was not exceptional but uh in terms of the acting and the interpretation of lyrics he gave maybe the best <laughs> performance i've ever heard and seen of what more can i say from falsettos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um we also had ryan knowles uh who's been in a number of a number of Scott's shows at 54 Below and is doing his own solo show later this week. Uh, there was a wonderful opera singer named Elena Mindlina. Uh, she was really great. But the most amazing thing of this show was that there were three identical triplets uh, wow. named, uh, and they perform under the title, the, the name Moi Pei, M-O-I P-E-I. Turns out that their group is normally a quartet, um, three triplets and one younger sister, and they are from Kenya. And their first names are Mary, Maggie, Marta, and Seraphine. Uh, so, but as I say, the, the three triplets were there last night and singing gorgeous close harmony. Uh, just, just really, really amazing uh incredible um they did uh they did 
I feel pretty. Uh, one of them sang the lead and the other two sang the, the, uh, the other roles of the, the Maria's friends in close harmony. And uh, I, I, you know, the audience went absolutely bonkers. It was amazing. I, I, I can't wait to, to see these women again. And maybe next time um, they'll have their other sister with them. <laughs> but also, uh, you know, I also wanted to say that um, uh I feel pretty to me. It, it may be the quintessential example of a, a song that has its flaws, but it is so wonderful overall mm-hmm. uh, that I think uh, it, it's really brilliant and was a tremendous, tremendous mistake to cut it from the, the last Broadway revival, which fortunately didn't run very long anyway. Uh, I was so gratified when it was included in the recent film remake of west side story uh i thought that it might not be because as, as we all know uh sondheim <laughs> famously denigrated his own work in it um uh over the years because uh, it was apparently sheldon harnick who first went to him yeah, years yeah. and years ago and said well i don't think a, you know a, an uneducated puerto rican girl would sing those lyrics but i i think i personally think it's poetic license and the main point of it is that it's it's Maria's one real moment of joy and happiness in the show. And I think uh, the melody is so lovely and the, mm-hmm. the idea of the lyric is so, so sweet and so joyful and so, so lovely that it's a great, great song, even if you think, well, maybe she wouldn't know that word and she wouldn't know that expression. <laughs> so I was glad that Moy Pei picked that song and did such a brilliant, brilliant job of it. Um, Ron Abel was the musical director again. He's one of the best musical directors and also one of the best pianists, accompanists you'll you'll, you'll ever find. Uh, And it was a, it was a definite um, highlight of, of all of Scott's shows that I've seen. And uh, by the way, absolutely packed. Um, to the gills. So I guess word has gotten out. And I think all of those people were very glad that they happened to choose that particular night Mm -hmm. to show up. Hmm. So, uh, I don't know, Michael, uh, with your producing career and Scott's (laughs) producing (laughs) career, uh, I think all of our wallets are taking a big hit. (laughs) You know? This is wonderful. I, I see on the 54 Below website that they have a love song Saturday night uh, scheduled for April 8th, June 3rd, and August 19th. Do you know if it's going to be similar shows, similar lineups, or is it just uh, next well, I incarnations? Think, uh, what happens is if you want to find out who's going to be in those specific shows, just keep going back to the mm. website and that will eventually be updated. Because, well, uh, you know, as you might imagine, many times um, the lineup, you know, the singers are, are not set until closer yeah. to the date. Mm-hmm. Well, we will have it in the show notes if anybody would like to get back to it. Uh, they can surely uh, check that out. Click on that and check out what's going to happen on April 8th, which is just uh, a mere four weeks or so away. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, uh, Peter, for the last review of the morning, you got over to Keen Company to see Crumbs from the Table of Joy. So tell us about this. 
This is Lynn Nottage's first play. We uh, heard Lynn's name mentioned earlier, and of course, she has gone on to be one of our most significant playwrights. A couple of Pulitzer Prizes. How bad can she be? Um, needless <laughs> to say. So, uh, this is an early work, uh, Crumbs from the Table of Joy, uh, produced um, in the 90s, when she was just starting out. And to be fair, it sort of seems that from the vantage point that it's it takes a while for this play to get going, but once it does, whoa, um, hold on to your hats. It really gets very powerful. All right. So it's narrated by Ernestine Crump, and here is another breakout performance by Chanel Bailey. Um, yes, she's been in the Book of Mormon as an understudy, and she's been in the ensemble, but here she gets a chance to really shine, and shine she does as this uh, young teenage girl um, who has a sister, indeed, um, uh, and they uh, are having a bit of a problem now because their mother is no longer there and her father is doing the best he can and nicely played by Jason Bowen by the really a very, very good performance. But um, they're living with their aunt, um, Lillian Green. Terrific performance by Sharina Martin. Terrific. Uh, and um, the aunt has a lot of opinions, certainly about white people too, by the way. But the play really doesn't take off until the end of the first act, because the father happens to meet um, a woman on the on the subway who's asking direction. She's an immigrant. She's from Germany. She's white. Nobody else is. And um, it's a whirlwind courtship. The next thing we know, they're married. And that's when the play takes off, because what's it like in 1950 in Brooklyn? Yes, that's very, very clear. It's 1950 in Brooklyn. Which is, you know, suddenly, you know, 73 years ago. And, um, what's it like for these people? Now, of course, we don't see what society, uh, feels. Um, it's basically kept in the home. Um, first off, any stepmother, no matter what color, is going to have a problem with, uh, two teenage daughters. And, um, and Malika Samuel, by the way, is excellent, too, is the uh, sister, Amina. But any stepmother walks into a situation like that is, is going to um, really be challenged, which is why I don't like South Pacific much, because, you know, what's going to happen to Nellie uh, once she finds out she's going to be an automatic stepmother? Granted, those kids a little, but it's not going to be much longer before they're saying, you're not my mother, which basically is what's going on here. They resist her. So does Lillianne, because after all, she became the de facto uh, mother. And in fact, she's attracted to the father. Godfrey is his name. She's attracted to him. And you can tell that she wants to be uh, the next Mrs. Crump. That's the last name. And uh, so what's going to happen there? So there's a lot of conflict here in the second act. And Natalia Payne playing Greta Schultz, terrific performance, but beautifully written, too, because she rarely loses her cool. And when she does, she doesn't become white hot either. This lady is working so hard, this character, to do the best she can under very difficult circumstances. And we come away admiring her so much, knowing that if we were in that situation, we would have blown up and driven people crazy or even killed them all um, long before she even comes to a, a simmer, let alone a boil. So um, a very, very effective um, end of the first act, a very, very effective second act, an extraordinarily effective second act. Colette Robert, um, or Robert, or Robert, uh, has directed and has directed wonderfully. It's a very bare-bones set. 
Uh, Brendan Gonzalez Boston has done it. Very bare bones, but it fits the bill. It's uh, quite right, but an excellent production. Um, Jonathan Silverstein, uh, who's the artistic director there at Keene, has really done marvelous work uh, after taking over from the founder of the company. And uh, we're really in his debt for um, reminding us where Lynn Nottage was, how far she's come, and how much potential she had, that we can see that potential here. So you, you uh, bear with the semi-sleepy uh, first part of the first act. Yeah, It's going to pay dividends later. Hmm. All right. So that is uh, Crumbs from the Table of Joy, a keen company. Uh, it's uh, playing through April 1st, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we didn't talk about this before we started, but I'm going to throw it at you. Uh, uh, Chaim Tulpal has passed away. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, any any words of uh, thoughts about seeing him? I don't believe I ever did. Um, I may have, but uh, I, ironically, I did see the musical The Baker's Wife, but I happened to go um, buy tickets for a Jewish holiday, not knowing it was a Jewish holiday, and he was observing the holiday, so I saw the understudy. So um, I don't think I ever saw him aside from the Fiddler movie. Um I did see the, I saw the uh, revival of Fiddler that was done at um, the New York State Theater Uh uh, that he was in. Uh And uh, did he hold up uh, well from the movie? Uh, Do you like his performance in the movie? Well, it's, (laughs) I'll try to be brief on that. (laughs) Um, I I have always had a problem with his performance in the movie for two reasons. the fact that his accent is so different from anyone else's uh, has always been a distraction for me. And also, I don't not sure why there's a slowness uh, to the performance in the movie that is not evident if you listen to the original London cast album. Uh, now, I realize um, sometimes cast albums uh Sometimes right. they're they're sure. performed quicker on purpose yeah, yeah. to uh, you know for time reasons. So yeah. so maybe he, he might have benefited there. But um, that opening monologue, you know, the opening there's opening lines in tradition mm-hmm. in the film. Uh, for some reason, they're done at a glacial pace, and I think that gets uh, that gets the whole thing off to an unfortunate start. And then there are some other places that were that slowness as well, but also. Uh, mainly it's the accent, I think, that bothers me. I think the acting um, is quite wonderful. Uh, the highlight of that movie for me is the scene where Hava uh, tells uh, tells Tevya that she has fallen in love with Fietka, and he just cannot, cannot accept it because he's not mm-hmm. a Jew and he's a Russian. Um, mm-hmm. That that scene is is amazing, and I think I think when I think of um, Topol, that's that's the scene I'm going to remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us now for podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can uh, get us through Patreon, patreon.com slash broadwayradio or broadwayradio.com slash Patreon to support all of our shows uh, going on at Broadway Radio, as I described earlier in uh, 
in today's broadcast. Uh, you can also listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Let's say that an actor who's about to go on in Driving Miss Daisy gets terrible stage fright and says he simply can't do it. His director's response might be the name of a song written for a 50s film musical. And the hint was, although the film did retain the title of the original stage show, it bore very little resemblance to what played Broadway. Okay, the answer. In the 1956 film, Anything Goes, <laughs> uh, which was really Anything Goes in Name Only, there was a new number called You Gotta Give the People Hoke. Well, given that our stage fraud actor was playing a character named Hoke in Driving Miss Daisy, the director might very well have said that <laughs> in hopes of getting him out there. So Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Juliet Green, Tony Janicki, Brigadoon, and Greg Christensen. This week's question, what composer has seen every one of his Tony-winning musicals made into a TV special, as well as another one? that didn't even get a Best Musical nomination. Name all four musicals, too. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, who do we want to wish a special happy birthday to? We want to wish a special happy birthday to Stephen Schwartz. Born March 6th, 1948, uh, so he just had his... 75th birthday. Kind of incredible, huh? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I can't imagine him. I, I don't mm -hmm. think of him as 75. At, right. You know. Mm -hmm. We uh, were honored to have Stephen on our podcast for the 50th anniversary of Godspell. Uh, and uh, he, I mean, he's just amazing. It's, it's such a fascinating career. Uh, beginning with the magnificent successes of Godspell and Pippin. Uh, and then... Uh, there were some fallow years after that, no, and, and no, 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 no. The magic show did very well. Oh yeah, no, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't mean immediately. Um, okay, but yeah, uh, and then and then Wicked happened. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, a kind of kind of that does not happen very often. We should. I'm going to think about that. Um, anything. Well, we anything offhand that that leaps out of you, Peter? As well, a late a late career success like that for a composer uh well after uh, not that's uh, we have to remember too is that he was having success in in hollywood and did win some Oscars. sure sure um, yeah but in terms of broadway yes um working in and rag certainly didn't um, become major box office successes though each deserved to be considering the work that uh stephen schwartz did on them that said um, the only thing that comes to mind, which wasn't nearly as long a drought, was Cole Porter, who a lot of people wrote off after three failures in the 40s mm, and Kiss yeah. Me Kate came back. But no, I mean, Stephen Schwartz's drought on Broadway was right. uh, substantially longer. What's really amazing, though, when you think of it, the, when the magic show closed, it was the ninth longest running musical, book musical in Broadway history. Now, nobody thinks about it anymore, but the thing is, with Godspell, with Pippin, and with The Magic Show. Those three shows were dominating what was going on in performance numbers at that period of time. 
And yet Wicked has run longer than all three put together, <laughs> and then some. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. incredible. Anyway, so our closer is Beautiful City. Oh, a song that was first written for the film version of Godspell because the director of that film uh, said he didn't like uh, the song We Beseech Thee for whatever which is, reason. Which is terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I guess maybe it seems like a more of a stage number than a film. I don't know. Uh, anyway, whatever. He didn't like it. So he asked Stephen to write something new. And Stephen wrote a, um, I guess you would call it an up-tempo mm-hmm. uh, uh, chorale Beautiful. Uh, I really love the, the the film version, the film arrangement of Beautiful City. Yeah. Uh, but then years later, he uh, Stephen reworked it um, into a much more uh, uh, emotional, darker, introspective, yes, uh, plaintive uh, mm-hmm. version of the song. And that is the version that was sung by Hunter Parrish very, very beautifully in the 2012 uh, Broadway revival of Godspell. Uh, I, I have always really, really loved that recording. And so that is our closer. And for our opener, uh, I thought we would tribute Jerry Orbach uh, as a promo for my, my show in July. Uh, sure, lots, begins at home. <laughs> lots to choose from there, but uh, um, partly because we also recently lost Burt Bacharach. I chose the title song from Promises, Promises, Uh Mm -hmm. um, which really was a a, a game changer on Broadway, as we've discussed many times. Uh, It's just a fantastic song. And uh, Jerry Orbach, um, you know, uh, that that, that must have been quite an experience for him to be the first person to introduce it on Broadway. Mm -hmm. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Heart by heart Now, maybe now We start learning how We can build a beautiful city Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can build a beautiful city. Not a city of angels, but we can build a city of men. When your trust is all but shattered, Better and battered, or you can slowly start to build a beautiful city. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can build a beautiful city, not a city of angels. Finally, a city of men. A city of men.